a nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off him. He had read of space. At the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter deadness, which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now, now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. He could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean, the worlds and all their life had come? He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds, whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly even upon the earth with so many eyes. And here with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens, the heavens which declared the glory, the happy climes that lie where day never shuts his eye, up in the broad fields of the sky. He quoted Milton's words to himself lovingly, at this time and often. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Hello and welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, gentleman adventurer, and with me today we have David Bates, who is a tall but a little round-shouldered person, about 40 years of age, and dressed with that particular kind of shabbiness, which marks a software engineer who works from home. David, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's great to be back again. It's great to have you again. And if David's voice sounds familiar, listeners, you've probably heard him on his own podcast, Pints with Jack which regularly outclasses our own little production, but we won't hold that against him here. But uh, yeah, it's so great to have you, David. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. We also have Logan Huggins. Producer Logan Huggins can be currently found feverishly editing and producing the podcast while being held against his will. Could find in one of many outhouse-like structures in Chris's backyard. How you doing back there, Logan? no we're doing great chris thanks for letting me out to record i really appreciate your uh, magnanimous offering but yeah no everything's going well thanks for having me on yeah yeah i'm nothing if not magnanimous it's all those solar rays that i'm getting Uh, (laughs) and and then finally we have sophie burkhart she is currently a master's student at regent college which allows her to spend pretty much all her time musing over the fascinating intersection of stories and theology when she's not reading books or writing papers she's attempting to spot all the incredible and so far highly elusive marine animals around vancouver sophie how you doing Oh, I'm doing very well. Glad to finally be able to jump back in. Good, good. So good to have you. This is going to be the first of three podcast episodes on Out of the Silent Planet. I'm going to start with just a bit of background. Out of the Silent Planet, first published in 1938 by Bodley Head, was Lewis's first work of science fiction and really his first major work of fiction. You can count 
the pilgrim's regress, but it is very, very allegorical. So whether or not allegory counts as fiction is probably another conversation. But but if it doesn't, then this is his first work of fiction that is published. It was the result of a lifetime of reading science fiction and also a bet between him and Tolkien. After reading Charles Williams' The Place of the Lion and David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus, Lewis attempted to find more thrillers that took myth and spirituality seriously. He approached Tolkien in 1936 saying, and I can't do the English accent with David here, but uh, Tollers, there's too little of what we like in stories. I'm afraid we shall have to try to write some ourselves. This according to one of Tolkien's letters. The two agreed that one of them should write a space travel story and the other one should write a time travel story. Apparently they tossed for it, which I assume they like flipped a coin. I'm interested in hearing though, David, what what kind of a coin typically gets flipped in a in a toss in England? Oof. Mm. 50 pence piece is always a good one. Okay. But this but this was in 1936. I'm not sure what the coinage was looking like back then. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Any, anyway, however, whatever coin they flipped, Lewis got space travel. And of course, Tolkien got time travel, which is a lot harder to write about. And Tolkien also takes a lot longer to write. Lewis, however, cranked out of the silent planet out in the, in the next year. Tolkien's time travel piece, though, be, became sort of the foundation of his whole Numenor myth. So if it hadn't been for this, there wouldn't be any space trilogy there also wouldn't be any uh numenor and you know lord of the rings would be quite different so uh, the character of elwin ransom who's the who's the main character of the space trilogy seems to be based on tolkien but also on lewis seems to be based on both men more obviously tolkien because he's a philologist many scholars such as david downing who we may well meet soon dispute this saying that the description given of the pedestrian is equally lewisian and i believe david david bates here does take david downing's side in this and i have officially challenged you to a rap battle at some future date that's right that's right so we'll we'll start a patreon and uh, you all can pay (laughs) us money if you want to hear us rap i i i cannot freestyle this book was partly in response to works that Lewis liked, thrillers, quote unquote, although I don't know that we call them those now, that, you know, people like David Lindsay and Charles Williams wrote that took spiritual reality seriously. And it was meant partly to correct science fiction works written by people who were more sort of scientistic, right? Who took a point of view that was maybe a little bit closer to Weston's view in this. So, before we get too much into that, though, and 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 Weston and Ransom and, and all of those, I'd like to know, everyone here, what, what your first experience was reading this book. Well, I'll go first. I think I read this book sometime in season one or two of Pints with Jack. So I was starting to get a little bit more serious about Lewis. So I figured I should probably read more of his canon than just mere Christianity. And initially, I think I was a little disappointed. And that was mainly because of the expectations that I went in with. I was expecting Star Wars, and Out of the Silent Planet is not Star Wars. It's not even Star Trek. It's not even Battlestar Galactica. But (laughs) I I warmed to it on subsequent re-readings once I had a better idea of what I was going to encounter there. And I actually now like it so much that we're actually doing this season on Pints of Jack on Out of the Silent Planet, 
So it's rather wonderful to come on this show and steal anything that you guys, any any insights that you guys have and pass them off as my own on my podcast. Yes, yes. Well, we'll we'll get you back <laughs> on, on that front. And and also, you know, of course, there's the rap battle. Of course. But uh, yeah, yeah. Listeners, by the way, if you just can't get enough of hearing about Out of the Silent Planet, please do go to Pints with Jack. I, I expect by the time this comes out, that will already have been posted. So there's lots more of this book to explore. Logan, how about you? So I was trying to think about this. I'm fairly certain my first exposure to the silent planet i had already written or excuse me i had already read mere christianity that was my first sort of step into c.s lewis and a friend of mine said hey, well if you like c.s lewis you should check out his science fiction and my mind just went crazy i was like oh my gosh here's like my favorite christian author someone i respect and admire so much and here's a science he, he does science fiction i never even heard of that like that's amazing so i looked it up found this fun little book out of the silent planet i have my copy here that i actually bought which regular listeners of the podcast know anytime i've been on i am a big audiobook person not a physical book person because of lifestyle that i you know i was a, a commuter student in college so i never had time to sit down and read it but i would listen to it in the car all the time and so for me to like actually buy a, it sounds strange to say on a literary podcast but for me to actually sit and buy the book was like I'm so excited for this. This is going to be, this is super excited. So, but yeah, I, I dove into it. Fortunately, it's not a very long book. It's like a hundred, it's like 200 pages long. It's very brief. And uh, yeah, just had the best time diving into it. And yeah, I very similar to what David mentioned. I, I wasn't sure where my expectations were. I couldn't really guess what a sci-fi story from the thirties would even look like. Because myself, I grew up watching sort of mystery science theater, and I knew what a lot of sci-fi stories from the fifties look like, and it was all sort yeah. of, you know, very mm. monster. This island Earth, this island Earth, and Plan Plan Nine from outer space and whatnot, and it's all very coded metaphors about the the communist or whatever it might be at the time. So I was very interested. I was like, what am I going to get myself into? And fortunately, I think. This, I, I actually read Out of the Science Planet before I ever got into the Narnia books either. So this was my first experience seeing how C.S. Lewis can take a genre or take an, a, a group of ideas and sort of spiritualize them. Like he's always talking about baptizing. He always talks about baptizing Narnia, you know, baptizing the imagination. Here he's baptizing science fiction and space travel and how we think about planets, how we think about space and sort of aligning it in the Christian worldview. And I love it. I, this is, I can honestly say this is the book I've read the most of, of C.S. Lewis. It's probably my favorite or it was until I read Paralandria, the, the follow-up book. That is my all-time favorite. But this book here, I think is such a fun step into that world and a fun exploration of how C.S. Lewis can take something and make something really incredible out of it. Yeah. Right on. Uh, Sophie, how about you? Yeah, I, I read this first, I think, in high school. I was required reading. But I mean, I think I'd already read a fair bit of Lewis at this point. And I didn't love Narnia a ton as a child. Like, I liked some of them, but not all of them. And so... Say what you say. Stone you later. Carry on, please. <laughs> okay. I, lo I love Narnia now. I've repented. Probably, of probably, probably too English, you know? <laughs> Maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, but when I read this, I just immediately loved it. And I think this 
trilogy in general, I feel like is Lewis's best prose. Like the passage read is just beautiful. And I, and I love reading it. And I think it completely sort of reshaped my vision of even how to sort of imagine space and what that could look like. Yeah. So I've always, I've always loved this. Paralander is also my favorite Lewis book, but this one is, is so good too. And I also love HG Wells a lot. And so I love, it's so much fun to compare the two, especially because he mentions Wells quite a bit in this one. Yeah. And listeners, if you want to hear Sophie talk about Itchy Wells, go to her podcast Under the Willow Tree, which which there's a an episode on Wells, which I've not yet listened to, but I will. But I'm excited to hear any points that you might have about Wells or First Men in the Moon or, or anything like that. But yeah, for me, I was in ninth grade, maybe eighth grade. I'd already read Screwtape Letters and like committed many of them to memory because we had tapes and we listened to them in the car again and again and again. It was the one read by John Cleese, if you're curious. But I remember reading this, you know, out of the silent planet and just being really affected by it. I remember making like models out of there's clay called Sculpey that you could bake in the oven. It would harden. I remember making models of like, you know, the Sorns and the <laughs> Fiffle Triggy or however you say the the name and, and stuff like that. And What a I, nerd. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, to be fair, in the eighth grade, just about every boy is a nerd, you know. But uh, yeah, I remember trying to recommend it to people who we're kind of like, yeah, but it's science fiction. I really don't like to read science fiction and trying to say like, no, no, but it's different. This is different kind of science fiction. And mostly they were not convinced, but uh, yeah. And uh, this is probably a, a decent enough segue into the, the first part of the book where Ransom's on Earth. I had a recent conversation with an author named Jonathan Geltner just about fantasy literature and the tendency that old fantasy authors had to write a lot of landscape in their book, right? And to and to write just like really evocative description that showed that they loved not only the worlds that they made up in their minds, but also like the world think as they encountered it around them. And I think this is this book is a really good case in point. You have this fairly thorough and 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 interesting description of this desolate landscape that a pedestrian, capital P pedestrian, is walking through on a walking tour in, in the first page. And it sets you up for, you know, you, you, you feel like you can visualize the landscape of earth around you, which allows you, I think, to more fully visualize as well the Malacandrian landscape when we, when we get there. But there's a, just kind of a deep sense of place here that I think we get from really the get-go as the pedestrian is, is on this walking tour towards Stark. Is it Stark, David, or is it Stirk? I would pronounce it Stirk. Although I actually found out that Stirk is an earlier form of the word Stark. Okay. And I know Dr. Downing oh. suggests that this is an allusion to the voyage of Arcturus, which you mentioned already, because there there's a laboratory in the countryside, in the middle of nowhere, called Stark Ness. Is, is, did you say Stirk or did you say Stark? Stirk. Stirk. We're going to be doing, okay. we're going to be doing this all, all night, right. aren't we? All right. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Repeating yeah. Things <laughs> uh, yeah, really, really quickly, I guess we should probably say, because we're going to refer to it a bunch. What's Voyage of Arcturus about? 
It's a, it's a David Lindsay novel that Lewis referred to a bunch. I found it in an old used bookstore, got really excited, read maybe about two thirds of it and then stopped reading it because it was very confusing and very weird. Uh, but but Lewis loved it because it was it was a it was a type of science fiction that took the spiritual very seriously, right? And 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 explored spiritual ideas and philosophical ideas. Anything else that we should say about Voyage of Arcturus before we continue talking about uh, Out of the Silent Planet? I think only the fact that it was an important book to Lewis, but it was one of many. The guy was a real yeah. sci-fi junkie. He absolutely loved the form, uh, and they all they all shaped him. But as you mentioned. There are a couple of books that really stood out because they started doing something different with science fiction and not just using it as an excuse to make up techno babble. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, curious to end. I know, Sophie, you know more about H.G. Wells than I do. C.S. Lewis sort of, since he, he has a whole page at the front of sort of a, a special note acknowledging his the debt he owes to H.G. Wells. So, like, the book definitely lives in the shadow of H.G. Wells' work. But what I don't know is, by 1937, which of H.G. Wells' works were out there? Did, were, was he already like as popular as, as he was going to get? Did he? There was like War of the Worlds out there. Can you tell me a little bit about what kind of environment the H.G. Wells books were inhabiting at this time when C.S. Lewis sort of stepped in and tried to make his twist on it? Yeah, yeah. I think by then, pretty much all, if not all of H.G. Wells' books would have already been published. And with The Time Machine, which was published in 1895, that was pretty much an instant success. So mm. I think by the time Lewis is around, they would be pretty widely circulated. Um, I think and Chris already mentioned like the first Men in the Moon. I think that one has a more similar feel to Out of the Silent Planet and sort of the, like going to a specific planet. So that's a specific one I can think of. But yeah, yeah, I think they would be already very, very popular, well known. I know for sure that Lewis received a copy of the first Men in the Moon for Christmas in 1908. So right. he was reading Wells right from the beginning. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, I was I was kind of listening around on LibriVox to parts of the first men in the moon in preparation for this. And it's 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 fun. Basically the setup is some guy's on holiday and he's trying to write a novel and he's a busy no he's not trying to write he's trying to write a play and he's a businessman and he keeps getting bothered by this like kind of pudgy scientist guy who who's he seems almost kind of kind of on the spectrum right he's, he's just very focused on his science stuff right and, and it's like slightly antisocial and uh, he's creating a kind of metal that is able for whatever reason to do space travel and so he ends up roping this playwright who's also i think his day job is like a businessman of some kind right into into his expedition to the moon that's about as far as i've gotten and i've skipped around a bit but but it's interesting right because it starts with this with this voyage between this guy who's very committed to science and a guy who's more of a businessman right except they're maybe a little more likable than the people that ransom meets in 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 out of the silent planet but 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 I, Lewis is is definitely you know and and their and their spaceship is a sphere. There's lots of stuff that that Lewis gets straight from First Men in the Moon, at least at this point when they're you know when they're when they're kind of on their on their voyage. But uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a fun kind of parallel. Also, I, just just while we're on the same 
while we're in this section to talk about like what the culture was at the point at this period of time out of curiosity i was curious when did the infamous war of the worlds broadcast happen with the orson wells when he came out and did the radio play of war of the worlds and people all over the country thought they were they were really invading that actually happened in 1938 too so the same year as this uh, book was published so that's that would be fun i'm curious i, I need to do some research if that if it came out first or second or i don't even know when the book was published but yeah that infamous radio broadcast happened during the same year so then maybe everyone's everyone's mind was already in tune to what's going on outside of our atmosphere that's really interesting yeah what if they actually does something similar with this book insofar as he is just presented as a factual story yeah mm-hmm. that's, so, an, true. that's so true device. yep yeah 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 so this is there there's there's an academic guy he's he's called initially just the pedestrian right going on a walking tour which i'm very envious of him for because every time i go to england i try to go on a walking tour and it never works out and I just have this like romantic notion of what a real walking tour really would be like. Um, this and, this uh, book should disabuse you of that notion because it begins yeah. with him standing underneath a tree because it's raining. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and like I said, he grounds the story in reality. If you're on a walking tour <laughs> in England, it's going to be raining. Yeah. Yeah. But, but see, those are, those are the sorts of things that I've been like hitchhiking in, you know, Eastern Europe and stuff like that. And, and like, having uncomfortable times make for much better stories later on when you're, when you're, you know, sitting and then talking, Oh yeah. You know, we stay, we stood out there and, you know, hitchhiked most of the day and the sun was beating down on us. And we had heavy packs and all this stuff, even though at the time it's like horrible, but I never, like, I, I always like look up, like, how do I, how do I go on a walking tour? And yeah, it just never for for whatever reason quite works out the way I'm envisioning, which is like, you know, miles and miles with a pack on my back, you know, out in out of the countryside. It I can, we came closer to it this past this past time when we went to when we went to Oxford. But 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 yeah, he's he's out walking along and things are going wrong. He's he can't find a place to sleep. He runs across an old lady who's really worried about her son who's 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 hired help for a at a at a house nearby let's see what did they exist? Yeah, the rise yeah and they and and he agrees to go and check on this woman's son and and, and he, he's also a little bit selfishly motivated just a tad because he finds out that the people living in this house and this rise are academics or, or or one of them is and that maybe they'll invite him to stay the night so that he won't have to continue walking or sleep in a gutter somewhere or something like that and so up he goes he climbs a hedge finds two men basically wrangling this this young man who seems to be uh, somehow mentally disabled asks them what they're doing and and one of them is is incredibly annoyed with him for breaking in or or you know crawling yeah, under his hedge awesome. yeah and uh, he finds out that this is divine a guy he kind of knows and then weston is the name of the really annoyed guy who's a who's a physicist 
and that really begins his his adventure. So so yeah, really they are his his adventure begins because he decides to take it upon himself to help someone. He's almost presented as this sort of knight who is sent on a quest, and uh, but kind of begrudgingly because when he gets to the house. The first thing he sort of thinks is, "Ugh, I could just keep going." It's like, "No, no, no! I, 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 I gave the lady my word," and so he's he's enough honor bound to make sure that he will go and complete what he said he was going to do. Yeah, it's 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 a lot like a knight because there there's there's a moment in a lot of in a lot of romances when the knight crosses a kind of boundary, right? And a lot of times the knight is crossing that boundary in service of someone else, and an adventure is kind of presented to the night and they can choose to accept that adventure or choose to reject it. And generally they accept it because we wouldn't be hearing the story of the night if they'd, if they'd rejected it. And in this case, he does accept it. It's, it's interesting that he seems to be doing it entirely out of a sense of duty that, that rather than like, you know, if, if you want to contrast it with, with Bill Baggins, right. Who is also kind of a comfortable middle-aged person doesn't really like adventures, but there's this thing deep inside of him, this Tookish part of him, right? That really does desire to go on adventures, right? That that sort of forces him to commit to going on this trip with this with these with these crazy dwarves and this wizard. But it's almost the inverse of that with with Ransom. Ransom is out on an adventure already. It's a very, dare we say, pedestrian adventure right <laughs> the kind of adventure that most people would who who like nature would would get up to but but he is asked to take up another adventure within that adventure right and 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 it's duty that compels him to do that he doesn't particularly want to accept that he kind of is hoping to get a bed for the night right which is the opposite of like kind of a, a tookish desire for for joy or enchantment or 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 whatever else but, uh, but i would also suggest that if you've read the right sort of books when you know that there's a knight who is going on a quest that knight will be changed in the process of going on that quest so at the moment we're seeing a ransom that wants to do the right thing albeit begrudgingly and i think the the book is already starting to suggest that we're going to see a development of his character as his journey as the pedestrian continues yeah, yeah, yeah. This, and this man. might be. I'm sorry, Chris. No, you go ahead. I was gonna say this might be a good point to just sort of talk about Ransom himself as a character because yeah, that's a, a great point, David. But I think it's. I'll just say I love Ransom as a character. I I really appreciate how Lewis made him an intellectual. Like he doesn't. He's he's obviously a professor, so he's a very intelligent. He's obviously in control of his emotions and whatnot, and. I, for me, I think a lot of this journey, and I will spend more time talking about this later, but like a lot of this book has to do with Ransom's relationship with fear and sort of how he deals with that, how he, we constantly see him pushing back and forth of like pushing against his fear, sort of, and especially when he gets to Malacandra, sort of pushing against sort of primal fear of running from danger. And sometimes he'll have to fight against this sort of existential big picture heady intellectual type of fear which i find su super interesting that lewis spends time exploring both but all, all that to say to to just echo david's point yeah i think 
Ransom is such a fun character because even though he has fears, and I think if I was in this situation, really reasonable fears, I mean, obviously getting drugged and thrown in a spaceship and taken off to another planet, I would be very quite fearful as well with two mean strangers. I would, I think that even though he's in situations where it's quite natural to have fear, I love watching him reason it out and sort of stir himself and sort of guard himself to like, yeah, using his own mental dexterity and his faith. And he talks about later, he sort of falls back on his devotions. He falls back on his prayers to sort of like, re- you know, to, to calm himself in those moments. And yeah, I, I appreciate that. He, even though he has fear, he's certainly not a coward. He's certainly not a, a, a weak character. And uh, I think a lesser story and so many sort of sci-fi stories you see nowadays, the plot is driven by like people making stupid, mis- stupid decisions. You know, they're doing something fearful and they, I don't know, they accidentally blow up the alien ship and now the aliens are going to come attack Earth or something. You know, it's like, as a viewer, I'm just like, come on, don't don't be stupid. Don't make that dumb mistake. Don't, you know, focus on what's really important and whatnot. But Ransom's not that way. And, and C.S. Lewis is so great at writing characters like that in the sense of like, they're very intelligent and I it's a joy to watch them progress through the story because you, you relate to them. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And I think one, one of the other... One of the other things that makes us like Ransom is a meeting Weston and Divine, right? So so Ransom has interrupted their whatever they were trying to do to this to this poor boy, right? Who's again mentally disabled and, and he meets and he, and he he liberates him and meets these two these two characters, Weston and Divine. Weston, who immediately starts abusing him and 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 yelling at him and and saying, "I don't care who you you know," finds out he's a philologist and says all these horrible things about philologists and other people who waste the resources of the academy that should be devoted to science. Um, well, he's and- a he's a he's a famous physicist, mm-hmm. so he he's the only he's actually studying real science. He's you know he's he's doing real research rather than all those silly artists and philologists and English majors and whatnot. Right. So for right. he's talking about you. Yeah. Yeah. He is. That I I'd I'd love to say that that is a passe way to think about the humanities, <laughs> but it's it definitely not. <laughs> it's still alive and well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean Weston's a big advocate of STEM, right? And you know, maybe not so much of, of reading the right books. But what are what are Weston and Divine like? How are they how are they dislikable? How are they unlike each other? Weston, he he's a very thickly set man, whereas Divine is 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 more more slender. Weston is the scientist, he's the grumpy one, he's a scientistic snob. Whereas Divine, he's more cynical and he is definitely a flatterer he will say whatever he needs to say to get whatever it is that he wants it's kind of funny the way that he introduces the men to each other using the same formula of praise oh well you know this is western you know the western this is ransom you know the western the the, the ransom and as we come to know both of these characters we're not really meant to like either of them but you see that they they have different life philosophies divine all he really cares about is 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 wealth and 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 success weston has higher ideals which you would think would be good but they are very twisted such that he is willing to do whatever it takes to achieve his goals yeah who would you who would you all rather be trapped in a spaceship with 
Would you rather, if you had to choose one, of, of course, Ransom has to be trapped in the spaceship with both of them. But if you had to choose just one, who would you prefer to 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 be cooped up with? Oh, Divine. He'll at least have some good alcohol with him. I can't run a podcast like Pints with Jack and choose. <laughs> <laughs> see, I would I would vote for Weston if I had to pick one to be stuck in a spaceship with. As we see later, they get to the point where Weston's trying to conserve oxygen, so he doesn't even talk at all. He just might grunt or give evil, you know, sort of give Ransom the stink eye and sort of act all high and mighty above him. But yeah, reading any kind of interaction with Divine, I'm, I'm reminded of every sort of student mixer I went to in college and grad school of everyone trying to be overly vocacious and overly loquacious and overly friendly and trying to make a deal and like rubbing shoulders and hitting you on the back and saying, oh, dear friend, you know, let's let's be friends. Oh, yeah. Remember this? Uh, this inside jokes and sarcasm and ultimately just super unpleasant so i'll take the gruff silent scientist anytime <laughs> yeah and i think i think lewis mentions this a few times where he where he's sort of like well and and i'm getting ahead of myself here so i'm i'm sorry but 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 just that weston as unpleasant as he is at least at least he believes in something Right. That being said, I'm I'm with David. I think I'd rather hang out with Divine because he at least is is kind of witty and 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 fun. I'm I'm sure I'd get annoyed with him. Although maybe he'd also get annoyed with me. Weston has this has has this view that was far more current in 1938 than it is now, which is which is the idea that in a civilized country, he says, people like Harry, like the woman's mentally disabled son, they wouldn't have any rights, right? And, and and civilized governments would have done away with him because he's not even really human. He's a he's a preparation, according to according to Weston, which sets us up for really something that's that that we're going to be examining throughout this book, right? Which is which is kind of the question of like, well, what is a sentient being? What is a human exactly? And uh, you know, should it should it be narrower than is commonly accepted the definition of of a of a human, or should it be wider than than what is commonly accepted? But uh, and as yeah. you reference, and as you said at the time, there were some very popular ideas, and one of them was eugenics. The idea right. that we need to weed out lesser beings from the gene pool and that will serve humanity. Chilling. <laughs> when mm -hmm. you get to see all of this flower in Nazi Germany, naturally. But it also points to another theme that we'll see throughout this book, the difference between humans and humanity. That for the love of humanity, Western is willing to tread and destroy any human in order to uh, to continue humanity and it, it's 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 a contradiction in his in his life philosophy and it's the thing that makes him particularly evil yeah on that note right both weston and ransom do something illegal here right weston drugs and kidnaps ransom and and, and brings him to in in a ship against his will for the love of humanity as you say, even though he doesn't really care about any one human particularly much other than, you know, maybe Weston and Ransom trespasses. And that, that seems like a minor infraction, but he is, you know, 
breaking into someone else's property and he's doing it not necessarily for this like grand lofty love of humanity but because he made a promise to a woman who is seen to be socially inferior to people in his station in order to to save someone who frankly most people in the book anyway find kind of annoying right but it's a it's an individual person right who isn't necessarily like terribly enjoyable to be around and 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 ransom himself you know says oh drat that kid that i have to go and find but he he does it because he recognizes harry's humanity and and he cares about harry as a person rather than just kind of caring about humanity in the abstract but uh, yeah it's it's an interesting difference between the two so divine realizes that Yes, we we did lose Harry, and I know Weston doesn't like it because to Weston, Harry is expendable and is one of the undesirables that we need to get rid of, but we picked up this guy who's on a walking tour, and by his own admission, nobody knows where he is. He's going to be gone several months, and, and you know, poor Ransom is just kind of kind of foolishly giving away the fact that he's you know no yeah nobody really knows where i am oh i have this one sister in india but i don't have any other close relatives nobody's expecting me back till till the beginning of term kind of saying all this to divine and divine realizes like oh this is our guy we're gonna we're gonna bring him and so ransom finds himself drugged and after a brief and odd dream that may be worth remarking upon where he's sitting on top of a wall he wakes up tries to escape is clunked on the head again and when he wakes up finds himself staring up at a giant moon that seems to fill up the whole window only it's not the moon it's actually the earth and he's he's filled with terror so this is kind of the the second portion of this beginning of the book where they are in space only Ransom realizes, as we read at the beginning of the show, space is a bad name for it. The older writers were correct when they labeled it heaven, and this is this is deep heaven. So, so yeah. Well, what's your favorite part about you know what Ransom observes about heaven as as he's floating up there? I love the whole part that read. I think having read a lot of H.G. Wells, especially very recently. You have this whole conception of, you know, space being dark and scary and you're going to planets where everyone is hostile and things are going to end poorly. And so just seeing how Lewis completely reverses this concept and suffuses this place with light and it's more meaningful and it's richer and it's deeper. I think, I mean, I loved it when I first read it, but I think I love it even more comparing it to other books in that context. And as well, having read more like reading Lewis's discarded image and and understanding the medieval view of the cosmos. I love how Lewis takes that and sort of uh, to bring this medieval concept of the world and put it into science fiction to sort of continue this tradition into the modern era, I think is really cool. And even if it doesn't, you know, work scientifically, I think it's just, it's an incredible imaginative way of understanding reality and going out to something that's, you know, more untainted by the fallenness of our world and more real and and more light yeah i think it's just a delight to read too i love the prose it's very poetic
Yeah. Any other favorite passages from from this part where they are in this ship and drifting towards the the planet, which which Ransom doesn't yet know where they're going. I have one here just on that same section. Sophie was referencing. This goes. This ties back to that notion of Ransom sort of having to wrestle with the idea of fear and to have to sort of understand what trying to rationalize what's going on, but at the same time, sort of navigate himself through his own reactions to it. Ransom was now thoroughly frightened, not with the prosaic fright that a man suffers in a war, but with the heady, bounding kind of fear that was hardly distinguishable from his general excitement. He was poised on a sort of emotional watershed from which he felt he might at any moment pass into delirious terror or into an ecstasy of joy. It's like, oh, that's that's fantastic because again, even Ransom, I think this is sort of like the beginning point where Ransom's still clinging onto that old space is empty and dead and cold, fearful, but he's just hinging into that, well, Maybe it's something awesome. Maybe there's moments. Maybe there's a ex, an ecstasy of joy that um that's ahead of me. And I I think this is neat. This is sort of like his first steps towards that journey of seeing space as alive and vibrant and colorful and the the world stuff that all life comes from or whatever. However he phrases it, it's just it's really neat. I love that little passage. And yeah. I'd like to comment on something a little bit more general that we find out through this book, and it's it's emphasized in the passage that you opened the episode with. And that is not only what a great writer Lewis is, but in this book in particular, everything is about perception. When we read mm. about Ransom being drugged, the narrator doesn't step in and just tell us what's happening. We get everything from Ransom's point of view as he's trying to understand his senses, he's trying to understand what he's looking at. And this is going to happen repeatedly throughout this story. Yeah. The Ransom's senses are going to be presented with something and he has to learn to try and make sense of it whether it's the fact that he's being drugged, whether he's looking up at a skylight and he thinks he's looking at the moon, but he's actually looking at something else. And also when he arrives at Malacandra, he's going to take some time to try and work out what it is he is even seeing. And there's a line in the Chronicles of Narnia, I think it's in The Magician's Nephew, where Lewis says that what you see depends where you're standing and also what sort of person you are. And we get to see what sort of person Ransom is and also what sort of person he becomes throughout this journey. I would also say that in this section, I know I should be loving the beautiful prose about the stars. I just love the humor and mm -hmm. Weston's annoyance at the person he's just kidnapped when he says, I suppose it'll save trouble if I deal with these questions at once instead of leaving you to pester us with them every hour for the next month. And when, when Ransom asks him how it is we're traveling, in, in, traveling through space, he says, well, if it makes you happy to repeat words that don't mean anything, which is in fact what unscientific people mean, what they want when they <laughs> ask for an explanation, you may say that we, and he gives a, a vague explanation. And also when Ransom hears that they've been to this planet before, he is, he can't, he can't believe it because it hasn't been in the papers. Uh, the, the, the humor throughout this book in also some of the rather dark points in the story, the mixing of them is just wonderful. No, I love that. I love what you're saying too, David, about Ransom's percep perception and that Lewis really gets that when you have experiences like this, it's not just you as this sort of discreet, unchanging 
individual going from one point to another point and either winning the day or losing or, or, or something else, but that this changes you and that, you know, your perception altering is part of that. And I think really interesting and prophetic in a lot of ways is Ransom's dream that he has before they even get on the ship. It seemed to him that he and Weston and Divine in this dream were all standing in a little garden surrounded by a wall. The garden was bright and sunlit, but over the top of the wall, you could see nothing but darkness. They were trying to climb up over the wall, and Weston asked them to give him a hoist up. Ransom kept on telling him not to go over the wall because it was so dark on the other side, but Weston insisted, and all three of them set about doing so. Ransom was the last. He got astride on the top of the wall, sitting on his coat because of the broken bottles. The other two had already dropped down on the outside of the darkness, but before he followed them, a door in the wall, which none of them had noticed, was opened from without, and the queerest people he had ever seen came into the garden, bringing Weston and Divine back with them. They left them in the garden and retired into the darkness themselves, locking the door behind them. Ransom found it impossible to get down from the wall. He remained sitting there, not frightened, but rather uncomfortable because his right leg, which was on the outside, felt so dark and his left leg felt so light. My leg will drop off if it gets much darker, he said. Then he looked down into the darkness and asked, Who are you? And the queer people must still have been there, for they all replied, Who? 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 Just like owls. So there's this great, this, this way in which him asking them, who are you, gets thrown back at him. So he's going through this journey, finds something out about humanity itself, right? And, him, and about himself as a member of, of humanity as they're crossing this boundary that maybe they shouldn't be crossing, right? But it's, it's such an evocative dream and it's so, it's so well done that I had to, I had to kind of bring it up, but Yeah. And I would uh, suggest the fact that at the end of the dream, Ransom is on the wall, half in and half out of the garden. It suggests that that is going to be related to his identity going hmm. forward, that he will be, he will be between these two worlds, yeah. whatever these two worlds are, yeah. uh, perhaps Earth and wherever it is these strange creatures come from. Yeah, yeah. And in part, what allows him to do that is his training as a philologist because he's the only one that speaks in that dream. Yep. Yep. The, uh, you know, the trash that he's studying according to Weston actually allows him to carry something valuable out of this encounter. We're probably getting ahead of ourselves. He also has, you know, he has a perspective on what's going on in, in deep heaven that the other two don't seem to share. Right. They're, you know, they're, they have the same physical experience, but it doesn't seem like they have the same spiritual experience that he does. He tried to explain what he meant to divine. It was not like fading light upon the earth mixed with the increasing moisture and phantom colors of the air. You might have H-A-L-V-E, its intensity, Ransom perceived, and the remaining half would still be what the whole had been, merely less, not other. Halve it again, and the residue would still be the same. As long as it was at all, it would be itself. 
out even to that imagined distance where its last force was spent. He tried to explain what he meant to Divine. Like Figamy's soap, grinned Divine. Pure soap to the last bubble, eh? I mean, his his best analogy for this is a soap product, right? I think it's actually quite a good one because soap cleans. It makes it makes things better and brighter. And we see that this is the effect, this is the influence, and that was the key word, of this light upon Ransom. He himself is being cleaned and scoured. Yeah, yeah. And this relates back to that idea of the medieval cosmos mm-hmm. where the, the heavens, the heavenly bodies, exert some influence on us. Yep, yep. Yeah, and sunlight is cleansing in 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 that imagination right that's why you know when they get the in in tolkien when they get the treasures from the barrow white they leave them out in the or is it is it the trolls i forget but but they leave them out to to sun right so that their malign influence will be will be kind of cleansed yeah absolutely and so there also you you mentioned about the the the, the spiritual experience which ransom is having which is his his fe- fellow crew members are not and and this is where we start getting all of the i mean to be fair there throughout but this was the first one that i noticed the first time reading through it was in the line where it says older thinkers have been wiser when they simply when they named it simply the heavens the heavens which declare the glory and that's a reference to lewis's favorite psalm psalm 19 and then the next thing that's quoted then is milton so this is where we get to see a little bit more that about ransom and his spirituality the fact that he is a believer and therefore he's interpreting what's happening to him not simply in a scientific way you know, purely in terms of physiology but also spiritually and also like having read all the right books he has a uh, a kind of store of analogies and and wisdom of of his culture through which this experience can be mediated in a way that it's you know it, it doesn't seem to be for for western divine who are mainly concerned about a how is this helping me become great by advancing humanity or b how is this helping me make some money but uh, yeah there's a there's there's a real aid to that sort of heart knowledge in his reading of milton and his reading of other authors uh, even if he himself does not really know what to expect and is about to be re-educated quite a bit but but having you know, been exposed to Milton and others allows that re-education to take place eventually, I'd argue anyway. It's a different kind of influence he's already had. Yeah. Yeah. So this 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 sphere, which which again he gets from Wells, I think, is is like a little planet. And down is always the 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 way that they're pulled. Lewis seems to, you know, seems to, it's interesting because like listening to the Wells, H.G. Wells's book, he does have them floating around in space. But Lewis, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to want to do that in, in this book, which is, which is interesting. Like there is gravity on this ship because it's just, you know, the center of, of the ship itself, of the spherical ship. But it's um, reduced, which is why yeah. they're wearing the girdle. Yeah. And, I, and when I was reading this book through this last time, I was thinking of it in terms of, wouldn't it be great if they could, if they turned this into a movie? And we actually had somebody on the show, Murphy Thelen, who is doing an adaptation of Out of the Silent Planet starring his kids and their kids' friends. So oh, like, that's awesome. Kids wearing mustaches and everything. Wonderful. That is but great. I was also thinking they would have to change that a little bit because he's basically wearing a metal dress and sunglasses and other than that naked, they would need to do something a little different. I think. 
That's one of the chief problems with adapting the space trilogy is is all the nudity because there's a whole <laughs> lot. Like, <laughs> were you gonna say something? Oh no, no, I think that's I. I do love his first moments waking up in the bed in his sort of chamber in the in the in the room that he sort of wakes up on once he's once they're already airborne. And yeah, the first time I read this, I was so it was very hard to visualize what the ship looked like. And then after rereading it, you sort of get an understanding of but yeah, the sort of center of mass and then everything's built like a soccer ball as if you're living inside and the, the core of the ship is the floor and then the roof is larger up the top and, and it sort of everything comes narrowed down. It took me three or four times to reread it. Like, what is, how is this description? But no, it was fun. And I do love the fact that he, as soon as he gets up out of bed, he pushes himself up and he flies immediately to the window because he, he's in less gravity. And yeah, I just, I think his first moments in the spaceship were one of my favorite segments of him sort of, he's not just drugged or he, no, that's the other thing he think he keeps thinking it's the effects of the drugs that are altering his muscles or altering his sort of movements. But no, it's not that it's worse. You're in space. <laughs> Yeah, and, and like the, the peace that he feels in deep heaven, right? Even though he's like, oh yeah, I might die, is 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 profound, but it's still troubled by by overhearing things that Weston and Divine are talking about. He, he goes to bed, he's restless, he remembers he's got to do some stuff, so he goes to the galley, does his jobs, and then the door to the control room opens, and he gets to hear Weston and Divine having a conversation. That's when he finds out that there are these things called sorns that they are terrifying and these guys seem to think that ransom is going to be some kind of human sacrifice yeah and he he begins to kind of imagine right and this is what robs him of peace in deep heaven right somebody wanted a victim any victim from earth he had been picked because divine had done the picking he realized for the first time in all circumstances a latent startling discovery that divine had hated him all these years <laughs> as heartily as he hated divine <laughs> but what was a sorn and he, he's remembering what divine said when he saw them he would eat out of divine's hands his mind like so many minds of his generation was richly furnished with bogies he had read his H.G. Wells and others. His universe was peopled with horrors such as ancient and medieval mythology could hardly rival. No insect-like vermiculate or crustacean abominable, no twitching feelers, rasping wings, slimy coils, curling tentacles, no monstrous union of superhuman intelligence and insatiable cruelty seemed to him anything but likely on an alien world. The Sorns would be, would be, he dared not think what the Sorns would be, and he was to be given to them. Somehow this seemed more horrible than being caught by them, given, handed over, offered. He saw in imagination various incompatible monstrosities, bulbous eyes, grinning jaws, horns, stings, mandibles, loathing of insects, loathing of snakes, loathing of things that squashed and squelched, all played their horrible symphonies over his nerves. But the reality would be worse. It would be an extraterrestrial otherness, something one had never thought of, never could have thought of. In that moment, Ransom made a decision. He could face death, but not the Sorns. He must escape when they got to Malacandra. If there were any possibility, starvation or even to be chased by the Sorns would be better than being handed over. If escape were impossible, then it must be suicide. Ransom was a pious man. He hoped 
he would be forgiven. It was no more in his power, he thought, to decide otherwise than to grow a new limb. Without hesitation, he stole back into the galley and secured the sharpest knife. Henceforward, he determined never to be parted from it. So this unreasoning terror that he feels seems to be the the main thing that robs him of peace when he's in deep heaven, which is which is interesting, and uh, and indeed w- when they finally do arrive on Malacandra and he's starting to adjust to the to the planet, and his eyes are starting to adjust, they do see the Sorns, right, and they're they're not bug-like things; they're like oddly ogreish tall spindly things right but he still runs away as 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 quickly as he's able to any other any highlights from from that part of, of chapter 7 and 8 really of of when they're on mars when they're or, when they're on Malacandra, and we don't know that it's Mars yet. Spoilers. One of my favorites was, I alluded to, one of my favorites was something I alluded to earlier, where we get the sight from Weston's point of view. And he first sees the planet, he first sees the landscape. And we're told he knew nothing yet well enough to see it. You cannot see things till you know roughly what they are. Yeah, the hermeneutic circle, right? You can't you, you can't see something until you recognize it. You can't recognize it until you know it. But but yeah, that's why babies look at you so strangely all the time, right? But but yeah, I love this. I love this initial description of it really I mean it puts all of the other descriptions of of planets, most of the other descriptions of planets that I've read to shame because it's exactly what you would after thinking about it, after reading it, it's exactly what you'd expect from going to a new world, right? Of course you wouldn't recognize stuff, especially if the gravity worked differently, right? So he sees this sort of cloud-like red thing on the horizon. He sees mountains that are far too tall. He sees water with waves that are far too high and, and narrow at their base for their height because, of course, the gravity is weaker on Mars but or on Malacandra, sorry again. But And then he sees these these things that are like humans that have been stretched out that are far too wide up top for their narrow little spindly legs and he freaks out they kind of uh, remind me of marsh wiggles yeah 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 they are a bit marsh wiggly if that's the adjective yeah i, I love also the the colors Right there, there's like this distinct palette of colors, and a lot of the covers for uh, this, some of them get the colors really right, and some of them really do not. He says it's kind of like a the colors are taken from a child's watercolor set, right? Very cool, very pastel, pinks and purples and 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 blues, but uh, yeah, it's such it's such a beautifully vividly realized world. But uh, yeah, they're they're attacked by something in the water, Weston and Vinar, and while they are. While they are about to hand him over to these sorns, these like tall, skinny white things, and and off he goes, and he runs for a long while, and finally falls asleep. Any final things we should say about this portion of the book? I don't think there's too much to add. 
Although I would just invite people just to think of what that would be like when you've been abducted. Something is trying now trying to attack you in the water and you are running off in a direction what it, it means nothing to you in a surrounded by an entire planet which is completely alien and unfamiliar to you. Just how terrifying that would be. There's 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 no base of reference that he's got. He is yeah. literally just being thrown in the deep end. Yeah. Uh, and it, it makes sense, his kind of talking to himself, right? And then, mm -hmm. and sort of saying, all right, Ransom, old man, it's just you and me now, right? I mean, <laughs> things like that. There's, there's, a, there's a comfort there that I'm sure I would do. I mean, I talk to myself as it is. I don't need to be on an alien planet to, to do it. But uh, yeah, there's a, a kind of self-soothing that's going on there. All right, so final goofy question. There are a lot of different covers of out of the silent planet what is your favorite cover and what's your least favorite cover and and sophie's had to go so it's just david and logan talking to me right now we're not leaving her out i promise she'll be back <laughs> next week but um, yeah what's 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 the best out of the silent planet cover you've you've seen and and what's the what's what's possibly the most unfortunate there are, there are a couple of weird ones if you go to cslewiseditions.com They've got every single cover that has ever been. And my favorite is one that is done in the style, maybe the the late 40s kind of comic book, where you see Ransom and a creature that we haven't yet met and and some sawns. And it it looks like a child's comic book. Uh, mm -hmm. I it just it just looks exciting. It looks like Indiana Jones, King Solomon's Mines, that sort of adventure. But there is also one that was produced just a couple of years later, and it's really creepy because the main feature of it is this eye. Yeah, I'm looking at that right dancing. now. It's kind of like the eye of Sauron, but yeah, more biological and creepy. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I expect very often the illustrator did not read the book, right? Um, Those books, particularly but, the science fiction uh, ones, that's very common. Yeah, but this, but this eye, it's like there's like a crack in a red sky and an eye that's like almost like the sun, and there's like some sort of lightning coming from the eye. It's very weird, but yeah, I, I think without doubt the the cover of the highest artistic merit is the cover that's very common now. That's uh, is it Kanuka Craft who who painted the new covers? That is that her name? I... Is that the one that Logan had? Yes, yes. It's a oh, nice, and, nice and this pastel one blues. Oh um, yeah, nice. Yes. Oh no, yeah, Canuco Craft. Yeah, because I'm I'm reading it on the back now, and I think I think in general, like this is the best depiction that I've seen. I really though am a big fan of, and I hadn't really looked at it much before preparing for this, but of the original cover, which looks pretty close to what's described and uh, yeah it doesn't have any people on it or aliens on it from what i can see but does have a lot of the vegetation and is it seems almost like it's drawn in chalk but that's it's it's kind of lovely in its own way the one that i remember the best though is the one that i first read out of the silent planet in which is the on on the site on this c.s lewis editions disordered image site there's one with like a whole bunch of spheres and there's like a spiritual, spiritual, spherical spaceship 
and then these like little bubbles on the like there's a there's a spaceship on the right that's in the sphere and then there are a bunch of like bubbly looking things i don't know if the artist was trying to draw like a an alien city or something like that and there's like a little guy who looks like he's in like a space suit or something like clearly the artist had not read <laughs> out of the silent planet and it's kind of like it's kind of green with like these green rays coming coming down anyway it's unrecognizable as melicandra nothing in it corresponds to anything that lewis writes in, in the book but i remember it so well because it's the cover of the book that that i first read when i when i read out of the silent planet how about you logan i'd say I, this this site is a treasure trove of some excellent and some quite awful book covers but i do love them all equally but i, I was gonna say the first i think my first exposure was there if you scroll down to the bottom there is a audiobook cover from 2001 which i believe is the version that i first listened to again let me set the scene for you i was listening to this on my ipod shuffle so again the <laughs> yeah. size of your fingertips if you put your fingertips together that's the size of the screen mm-hmm. so i was very fascinated to see what cover would pop up on the c.s lewis book i d- downloaded because i think when i downloaded mere christianity they just had some classical like you know michelangelo's david's head and it was like mere christianity but here the the picture they have for the audiobook again it seems like the artist did not read the book because there's like maple leaves in the front foreground and like a flowing river and some massive redwood trees or something in the back. Completely different, completely awful, but it's still, it's very invocative. It reminds me much of those like old Flash Gordon type adventures, films or TV series back in the olden days. So for that, I, I, I'm happy to overlook any any wrongdoing, but I will say, I think despite how bad the covers are for Out of the Silent Planet, I think it only gets worse for the other books in the Space Trilogy. Oh, yeah. just got some pretty good, pretty bad. Yeah, the, the covers, hand holding the apple and the... That, yeah, yeah. yeah. Paralanger's got some pretty out there ones, but I'm pretty, I, I think I still hold that hideous strength as like, every cover I've ever seen of that hideous yeah. strength is like, they are so off. <laughs> this completely different interpretation or just maybe just a guess of what he was going for yeah. but anyway but yeah no these are great this is an awesome site yeah 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 it's it is it is pretty great there are also you know listeners will be happy to know there are also plenty of heavy metal songs called out of the silent planet one by iron maiden which i have not heard But uh, yeah, there's also, by the way, a book called Out of the Soylent Planet, which <laughs> which I am currently reading, <laughs> which is which is pretty different from Lewis, but it's 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 fun and and definitely a comedy. But uh, yeah, Tolkien had a story that was called Out of the Talkative Planet. Yes, we need to. Yeah, what is what is that all about? Or is, can you give me any hints of what that is? I saw that in the pre-show notes. I was very interested to learn about that. Yeah, we'll have to do a we'll have to we'll have to do a deep dive on that one of these shows or maybe just release it as its own sort of bonus episode. It gets because, very meta. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's um, lots of inside jokes. Gotcha. So Tolkien and Lewis had this bet 
And it was that Tolkien would write a time travel story and Lewis wrote a space travel story. Tolkien does work for a very long time on his time travel story. And one of the versions of it that he that it ends up kind of metamorphosing into is, and David, correct me if I'm getting a detail wrong here, because it's you can you can read this in Sauron Defeated, and it's an Inklings meeting, except like in what Tolkien believes the 1980s will be like, and there are <laughs> different. It's 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 like not too different from the 1940s, to be honest. But um, the term in sight. Yeah, it's true. It's true. No shoulder pads. But yeah, no heavy metal either. But uh, these different professors are discussing Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. And these professors in the 80s, and they're talking about, you know, Lewis and other people in the it was clearly written to be read at an inklings meeting to make fun of various inklings in in various different ways and it's called out of the talkative planet because they're all talking a lot and they're making fun of or not making fun of discussing and sometimes making fun of in the discussion lewis is out of the silent planet so yeah it's 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 super fun what happens is one of the professors through this series of dreams comes into contact with a kind of past self or ancestor and then in that sort of past ancestral life that ancestor comes in contact with their ancestor and so on back all the way through the old english period all the way back to to atlantis right which is numenor and yeah it's it's yeah but at, but at first it's just a you know, it's 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 just a bunch of like kind of satire of of Lewis and then Lewis is out of the silent planet. So so thank you all so much for joining me as we talk about the first third of Out of the Silent Planet. Listeners, thank you as well for joining us. We will see you next time when we'll talk about the Chewy Center of out of the silent planet we'll meet we'll meet some inhabitants that are a little cuter and fuzzier than the sorens if a, if a little bit taller or a little bit taller than like ewoks anyway but yeah thank you all again david as always thank you for coming and talking with us and and listeners if you want to hear more from david please if you're not already subscribing to pints with jack please do because it's fantastic and if you like this sort of thing chances are you will love pints with jack logan thank you as always for all your work on this on this podcast and and, and for joining us and listeners we'll talk to you next time all blessed encounter full of joy unscheduled on the decent plan with here an addict of tolkien there a charles williams stand